Bill Hall, the author of Killdeer, the winner of this year's Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry. Welcome to the Bibliophile. The Killdeer, what a fascinating bird that is. This is what it sounds like. So whenever I don't know what to say, I'll squeeze them. <laughs> That's great. They do these Audubon toys. A friend of mine got it for me at a, uh, a raptor sanctuary in New York State and brought it to one of the signings in Toronto. I don't know if everyone has seen what they do, but it's, it's really interesting how they'll feign a, a broken wing mm -hmm. just to distract you from what's really important, the eggs. Yeah, little brown speckled ones sitting right under your foot if you're not careful. I like the killdeer because it's a faker. Lies. Yeah, it lies. It, it, like a uh, poet. Yeah, yeah. And when it lies, it is pretending to be really sincere. Like, <laughs> I'm really hurt. Yeah. I'm look, really in pain. Yes. And look over here. Don't look over there. That's what magic does, too. Look at this while I'm doing this. And that's what poetry does. So if we take the metaphor a bit further and look at the eggs, the eggs are what's really important. The eggs are what? The eggs are what you're trying to say but you're afraid to say. The eggs are what's under there when you say to someone, let's talk about something else. So, you so spend your whole important. life doing versions of not talking about it. Because it's too painful? Yeah, but then it becomes mythologized, so then it, it's, it's not painful, you've just spent years avoiding it. It's like uh, drunks in bars, who, they don't, they don't want to talk about that. No, that's all they do all night, is talk about it. <laughs> so, with me, it's, it's uh, growing up stuff. I grew up poor and rural. Uh, between Bob Cage and the Fountain Falls, and uh, my dad was itinerant and uneducated, and we rented abandoned farm houses that didn't have plumbing. We had an outhouse attached to the woodshed, and the kids I went to one-room country schools with all were going to inherit those farms, and we were like the gypsies because we didn't. Uh, if if the farmer sold that farm, then we'd move to another abandoned place, maybe in the next township or something. So everyone else had something. They had some roots or stability, yeah. and you didn't have any of that? No. There's a, there's a passage, and, and I just flipped straight to it, which is a good sign. Yeah. Years of not drinking, years of therapy, the gold thread of a third marriage, the inflatable anchorage of my children, these have healed me, not cleverness or career or language. Not being clever is a big point with me. Formalists lead with their intelligence. Innovators of language in poetry lead with their intelligence. Uh, I'm smart is what a lot of poems say. Increasingly there's a movement to bring philosophy into poetry. I find a lot of this pretentious and unkind to the audience. And I really think that 
the best poems come out of a kind of stupidity. Like, you don't know what you're doing, but you try it anyway, and you're hoping to get lucky, like a folk artist. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I'm stupid or uneducated, that I didn't go to the University of Windsor and study with really good people, and I did a master's degree, except I've, around what I do, my writing, I feel like an autodidact because I grew up without books and I hunt them avidly as if they were still a forest that I could go into and hide, which I did when I was small. I find that my audiences appreciate me coming to them with my doubt and my awkwardness. It's a gift to them to put them at ease to say, I'm not putting on the dog here for you folks. I'm not going to talk down to you, but, uh, but I'm not going to act like I've got something special you can't have. Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of that in, in this text, the critique of even the attempts at innocence. You quote Orwell talking about how um, even simple language and the, the simple ending is just contrived now. Closure is a, a trick. For generations, the, the small ending that closes it off musically is a way of reassuring. It's almost a political move to reassure the reader that everything's okay. You're not going to see anything here that you haven't seen before, that you weren't taught in school. It, it's the way soap operas end. It's the way advertisements end. The comfort of the music. The way the Lord's Prayer ends. The da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm familiar with this. It's it's soothing. It's, it's in uh, the tradition. It's God is in His heaven. Is all is right with the world. People go to jazz for just the opposite, but then that evolves too, and people go to uh, to jazz too for those closures. You know, like you go away from the melody, and you play around with it, and people like that, and then you come back and close it off. Repetition is soothing because you can you know what to expect. It is. One of the things I say in here is about lists, too. Repetition, the list picks up on that, and it's very popular and very simple to do. Uh, a lot of students I have or had write list poems. You can start, like Joe Brainerd's famous poem, I Remember, that's all it is. I remember, yeah. I remember, I remember. George Barring picked that up in a whole book he wrote about George Greg Kernel called The Mustache. And it's all, I remember this time with Greg. I remember Greg doing this. I remember him saying, I remember. What I say in here at some point is that it's almost military <laughs> uh, and very reassuring too, so. So as a result, unadventurous and formal and doesn't explore, it doesn't challenge you, it's? It's a little too easy and. Formula. If Yes, if it's done at length, it becomes dishonest about reality, which is which is always stumbling off at tangents. So one of the things I've done here is listen to a whole lot of old fiddle tunes. I'm very keen on how a fiddle tune will go really, really wide and then come back, doop, 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 doop. And, and it's going circular, but it's adjusting it just a little bit so that each time you come back to the chorus, a good fiddler is going to be adding some, some bumps and plucks and a little extra length in something 
so that you don't you, you don't have that you have a variation so it's not so, monotonous yes but it's also surprises. yeah I was going to say it also shows some innovation yeah some originality on the part of that yeah player it surprises the reader too I like to think that uh, sometimes I've, I've gotten close to that with uh, breaking up the lists and the closure and the repetitions so that I can drift off to the side and that's what the essay poem has allowed me is to to go away almost to the point where in the midst of revising these things I can almost reach a point where I can just about say anything next and still be talking about what I'm talking about. <laughs> if you bring up a number of poets who are no longer alive that uh, influenced you, one in particular, Bron Wallace. Bron Wallace. Uh, she dies, but if she had lived, you say, she would have written novels. Yes. And it's this desire to, to say more than a poem says. Mm -hmm. And this, to me, seems to be what you've done with this work here. It's a poem, but it's, it's also a memoir, it's a critique, it's more than a poem. Bronwyn Wallace was uh, one of these women who, if you were in the midst of sharing a story, about halfway through it, she'd remember somebody else who something similar had happened to, and you had to meet them, but she had to tell you about them. And there's a story related with that, and it would just snowball yeah. and, and go wider and wider. And then she started to realize that that was her music for poems, so that at first if she was writing this, the small thin ones about her in her kitchen, they, they started to expand so that before she died she was writing short stories and prose poems that were very uh, chatty and people love them because they made people feel like um, oh this voice here is just like my voice it's goofy and it doesn't it isn't um, making a perfect object and it's it's eager to share more than it's eager to make art so she would have written novels I'm sure so you take us uh, in Kildare from the early days and you start with, again, a, a lovely little story about seeking out uh, Margaret Lawrence and, and going to her house and the fact that she took the time to read what you'd given her. Well, I was a pretentious little twin. <laughs> you say you hope you keep that. I can't remember now what possessed me to seek out Lawrence, but I hope it possesses me still. Yes, I'm wanting to encourage younger writers. Part of the growing process is to embarrass yourself by writing bad things and then getting past them. Some of the feeling that you belong among other writers is to seek them out, and so I did. As I say in there, I didn't even care that she didn't write poems. I just mm -hmm. wanted her to touch them even. Well, and yeah, you say that Margaret Lawrence touched the hand I write with, otherwise my pen might belong nowhere, have no family, be part of no continuance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have this thing about proximity. I like to go and stand by the painting, even if I've seen it a hundred times in a, in a book, because, mm -hmm. holy cow, I didn't know how big it was. 
or how vibrant the colors are. And, and I can be very moved by that. Going to hear people read sometimes has allowed me into their work because I heard their voice. I had this difficult encounter. No, the, it was a lovely encounter with J.M. Kutsia. And he agreed to sign a lot of my books. He's a very private man and difficult to start up a connection or a conversation with, uh, which I attempted a number of times, and it was fine. But I was suddenly struck while I was going through that by how inane this is. Like, what am I trying to do here? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm trying to get a connection with this person who I revere, and he's signing my books, but, you know? And it, I kind of went through a bit of a mini-crisis at the time. And I, I reflect back on it, I still love, I'm so happy to have my books that have been touched and signed yes. by him, but really, am I kidding myself, or is the collector kidding themselves? Maybe, but those people that we admire that much, they have something that we want. Uh, it isn't them specifically, but they have achieved a, a zone of competence or width that we would like to get to. Maybe it's magical thinking that if we touch them, they touch us, they touch our work, we touch theirs, that that will pull us forward or pull us wider. And if we think of them as admirable humans, then to stand in a photograph with them makes us feel like we're closer to being admirable humans too. Something like that. Something like that. So that's what was going through you, you think, with <laughs> Margaret Lawrence, and yeah. and later you'd sent something to Irving Leighton that, Irving he, Leighton. that he liked. Yeah. And he sent you a postcard from Greece. Yeah, I got that. So, again, a small gesture, but big impact? Big impact. It meant a lot to me. When Milton Acorn read, for the last time, he was in Sunnybrook Nursing Home, and they brought him out for the night to read at Toronto Press Club with Al Purdy. And I was the, the young warm-up act, and uh, it meant a great deal to me. Regardless of how inane my poems were, it was great. And To be on the same stage? Yes. Milton Acorn didn't have anything to wear, so they'd stopped, and he got himself a... I remember it as a, as a lime green tracksuit and a, a lemon-colored woman's scarf with his his pens and cigars in the pocket and quite off the wall but Al Purdy was very gracious to him. I remember when I I came off the, the stage and my little poems a little warm-up act uh, Acorn is a mumbling way and he, he said to me as I passed he said more attention to form <laughs> I thought oh yeah I gotta I gotta have more attention to form you know and I didn't care that he was well, I didn't care me. that he was crazy even. I took it as that's the voice coming to me, you know. That he listened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because there's another poet who who said some miserable things to you and you <laughs> <laughs> that you quote. Uh, he said, Far from giving me any pleasure, this book almost made me puke. If I were you, I wouldn't write another book for ten years. <laughs> But then yeah. you saw him, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was a pretty nice guy. George Amabile, he's retired from 
University of Winnipeg. You then go to, to say something like you're, you're grateful for that because... It saved me from years of... Kissing asses. That's, That's it. it. That. What did you mean by that? Oh, well, he was being honest. And I didn't know those poems were crap, really, until he told me. It's good to know that because it means that what you write next better get a little deeper and a little wider and a little... <laughs> pay attention to form. Pay yeah. attention to music. Do something. Don't just say, my pain, my pain, my pain. Yeah, that comes up quite often. You don't like people talking about their pain. You don't like, I got dumped, basically. I got dumped. Whining. Woe is me. You get a lot of that in poetry, you, you find? You do. People in my uh, writing workshops and classes, they think that because it happened to them and they were really hurt or had a huge emotional response, their, their mother died, uh, their girlfriend left them, their, uh, their dog died, doesn't matter. They think because it had a huge emotion on them, they write about it, that's it. And I have to explain to them that there's two events. There's what happened to you and what you write. And what you write has to be a separate event. It has to have its own life in music and language. And when I try to point that out to them, they'll often say, but you don't understand this because you weren't there. That's no good. That's a club out. You don't understand because it didn't happen to you. I say, no, I don't understand because you didn't do this well enough. You're blinded to everyone else. And this happened physically. This happens textually. So make it sing or do something so that when the reader reads it, they have an experience. Not, not you pointing back to the one you had. So cut the umbilical cord and make something else. Don't use poetry as therapy. Well, go ahead, but embellish it a bit. Turn it into something that'll cause a reaction. Right. I'm a big fan of uh, John Berryman and all the confessional people, and I think that it's pretty knee-jerk these days to, if you mention confessional writing, to apologize for it and, and ironically put it down. But mm. the best of confessional writing was the best poems of its period. And Sexton, John Berryman, Robert Lowell were showing everybody else that if you if you go right to your shoulder in the cow pond, you're going to pull up something scary, and people are going to appreciate that because it's going to remind them that uh, it isn't all meringue. You take us through Harold Innes, Marshall McLuhan, through the '60s with this poem essay, and you also talk about. And I think it's an important part of what poets tend to talk about these days amongst themselves. And that is I. And again, this is something you're critical of. I'm the suspicious. Of I like to say suspicious rather than critical because anything that makes me uncomfortable when I read it, if it's done an extra half mile better, it's going to impress the hell out of me. But as a general trend, semi-well-done work is going to make me uncomfortable because somebody's not, they're focusing too much on themselves, and there's a hell of a lot of people on the earth. So 
one of the things I talk about in there is, is this urge to take the eye as if it were a bar or, or a loaf of bread dough or something and stretch it, stretch it open so that it, it would become we. So from the first person pronoun to the third, that's a big deal because the eye is phallic, blind, uh, selfish, and the we is uh, someone with their arms open saying, um, no, no, could we get the photo with, with everybody else in here too? And, and I like that. I like that um, Woody Guthrie said, I hate a poem. He says, talking about songs, he said, I hate a song that makes a person feel like they're no good, they're too stupid, they can't do it, they're, they're never going to get anywhere. I hate it. I hate a poem like that. Because if we keep writing all our lives, where do we get that voice from? You don't invent it, you, you borrow it. And it's a sacred trust. Because if you're not going to be silent, then you better understand that you're representing everybody. When I got this award last night, I was very aware that, and, and people were coming up to me afterwards, old uh, friends, poets I hadn't seen in a long time, and I really understood that uh, this year I was representing them. So I said something about, after all this is over, we'll go back to the page. Ultimately, the award goes to silence. So what to say next? What the next music is, is the important thing. So would you say that the jury was making a political statement by choosing your work? No, I don't think so. Or an aesthetic judgment. Maybe I should bring out or invite the elephant into the room, Ken Babstock, whose poetry does make one feel stupid, or at least you just don't get it. Would you say that there's two schools of poetry at work here and you're critical of one of them? And that's why you were, obviously the merit of the work itself was what determined your winning it. However, you're making a statement about poetry in, in this in ways that other works don't, or at least you're doing it much more evidently. I've been concerned with being hermetic as well as populist, so that uh, I can focus on language as an important element of poems, but also populist issues. And it's true, I expected Ken's new book and uh, some others to be to be top contenders. But each year, the Canada Council people work very hard with a whole bunch of factors, regional, gender, ethnic, city versus rural, uh, all kinds of issues around who big names to, to lower names in the poetry circle, old versus young, to come up with those juries. And those three people, in the mix of their preferences, something's going to fall through. And, and I was lucky that way. Stephen McCaffrey is a hero of mine for his experimental sound and text work. And he, he like us, is an avid collector and theorist about the history of experimental writing and so on, sound poetry and so on. But the other two jurors, one of them is uh, Métis, 
woman who was in my first writing class when I was uh, started to teach at uh, St. Clair College in Windsor. She lives out in the West Coast now. I haven't seen her in years, but uh, she happened to be on that jury. And uh, Douglas Burnett Smith, uh, I met a few times at League of Canadian Poets conferences. He's, he lives in the East Coast. And they're more uh, conservative writers. And somehow in that mix, they all saw something in there, so that's good. But a different jury. This, to me, suggests a concern for the way that poetry is moving where it should go like almost like not a manifesto necessarily but mm. there's some wisdom here that you're imparting yeah perhaps I've said too much <laughs> they are essay poems but one of the advantages of being a poet who is foolhardy enough to try and talk about what he does is that you don't have to be right you're not an academic, so you don't have to defend your theory by... No, it's poetry. It, so that <laughs> all you have to do is come up with a theory that works to keep you going forward. It doesn't have to be right. It could be all bullshit. It could be faking, like the killdeer. This highlights the populist elements of my thinking about what I do. But some people would say that my last few books have been getting weirder and weirder and what less accessible yeah they yeah. don't get them at all that's okay so you're moving around and but I'm just looking right now at a, a line here about Braun she can't tell the story without telling how it's being told mm -hmm. yeah that's to some extent what you're doing here then you're telling your story yeah, but that's a, in a way it's a bit annoying if you're telling me this is bullshit yeah I'm not it's not. The truth is that it's, it's dead honest. It's actually what I really think, and I've found a form so that I can say that. They work very well to read, like speeches, because like most speeches, if you pause before each sentence the way I do, using them as stanzas, then, then you can time them, and they have punch that way. And so I've set them up that way. They're epigrams. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. But uh, to stand by your word, to stand by what you say, uh, is a very frightening thing. So whenever someone, as, as you are this morning, says, you mean this, what did you mean? That I, I sort of want to, <laughs> I sort of want to, uh, or, or ask you about what, it's a defensive move. It's also something that poets will look at you if you say, well, what does it mean? And look at you as if you're a complete idiot. What does it mean? You can, it means whatever you want it to mean. It means what I say, but I hope that I've built these essay poems in a way that they, they don't sound definite. But on the other hand, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, that's one way to make a good poem, but, well, because sure as hell you say, I like a poem that does this, or I like a song that makes a person feel like it's okay to be goofy and alive. And sure as hell somebody's going to slap down one that doesn't, and you say, that's a pretty good poem. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so I'm reluctant to say of someone's book, uh, this is a crappy book, because someone will say, 
But did you read this one? I'm just glancing at this error is character uh, on page 60. It is. We know that about our friends. We know that what we love about our best people is their their flaws and how they balance them so that they're they're not complete bastards. And poems are like that. Books are like that. It's the way a person triumphs over the flaws in their thinking and in their structures and forms and so on that really endears us to the work, I think. I, th I think of Dostoevsky, the way he kind of ended his work so abruptly, often just to get them into the printer so he could yeah. make, get some money. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they aren't some of the greatest works of all time. They don't have to be perfect. No, perfect thing makes me nervous. I like a typo. You say that a typo is something that provokes thought. It does. I used to carry around a little notebook in my pocket, and when I lived in Vancouver and was poor, and I, I was doing home care with old people, so I traveled around the city a lot. This was a notebook. I still have it, and it was just called Mistakes. And <laughs> I would read things wrong, or I'd see something, and I'd mistake it for something else. And so I wrote these all down. I, I'd read a billboard or something. Did that say that? Or walking by a church and they put the little letters up wrong, so it said it said worship instead of worship. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like hearing the lyrics incorrectly. Yeah. 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 Nicky Drombolis, seventy-seven Florence. I know of him. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him, but I know he's put together a, a magnificent collection of coach house press works and. That he, he was a bookseller. There's also an interesting story coming out. Apparently, David Mason is writing a, a book on the bookselling business in Canada and some connection mm. with the Beats and the Mafia. It's a very interesting stories. But anyway, I, I just wonder if you could reflect on, on mm -hmm. him and, and this poem that you've written. Yeah. David Mason has also written some really good things about uh, Irving Layton and Alperti as collectors, book collectors, serious. They were serious yes. book collectors? Yes. That endears me to them right off the bat. Yes. Alperti wouldn't have wanted people to know necessarily that about him because he was working on a persona. But stories come out now that when he was traveling, you'd get a call from him. People in Edmonton or Winnipeg or... I've met people, they get a call. They didn't know him very well, but somebody told them that this person would know where the good bookstores were. And he was a very serious collector. And he would get them to take them around the city so he hit the right spots. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's why I set up my website called Literary Tourist. <laughs> yeah. It lists all used antiquarian bookstores in North America. Oh, great. Nicky uh, is one of my heroes. And he's just recently moved from 77 Florence up to Thunder Bay. Bought a couple of storefronts near the reserve there. and. Stocking his shelves, and to support himself, he sells, I understand, chunks of his various collections to the Rare Book Library at U of T. Fisher. Yeah. He's a, a writer himself, but he does a killdeer kind of thing. He he hides under the pseudonym of uh, Arthur Craven, and also the anonymity of doing very small editions of his own writing and gives them all away. It's a gift economy, and he's a great enthusiast for other people's works. 
as a thinker and a theorist. He's done these amazing tomes and is now working on a third one about Shakespeare, which is going to, once again, be anonymous, be as thick as what Tom Jones, and is going to be given away. Amazing. You mentioned the other works that he's uh, produced, uh, God's Wand. God's Wand is a study of the evolution of the alphabet. Amazing book. He produced that on a hand press? or what uh, he, he prints them, those two he printed at off hours at Coach House okay. because he was working there. Yeah, the other one is Myth as Math. So again, these aren't for sale. You just—I mean—they may end up in a second-hand bookstore, but you'd, you'd be lucky to, to yeah. find one. He does like uh, John Curry does. He keeps very detailed notes of who he gives them to. Uh, everything down from a card to that he's made detailed little notes of who got what when. And so, if one of those little chapbooks comes back to him or someone else says oh I found this he's going to go to his list and say this guy gets nothing else <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny it, well it's not funny when an author will find a book coming back to him in a, in a used bookstore with yeah. a lovely warm inscription oh, in it that they've given it to someone yeah. and they found that they've gotten rid of the book yeah. Yeah. perhaps we could wind up back with our killdeer again the poem the Thin Plea. Thin Plea, yeah, that's the one that's got the most marks on it. And the, and the opening uh, is... Falteringly. Falteringly <laughs> is, is the, a theatrical <laughs> notation. Stage uh, direction. That's right, right a stage direction, <laughs> but also it, it's a, a, a slight nod to fiddle tunes. Lots of wonderful word pictures here. In open fields, my bird ranges, it nests near cow plops and hooves. It's only protection, a desperate busking. Are you a desperate busker? Oh, not as desperate as it used to be. <laughs> yes, congratulations again. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, mm. it's legitimizing, so. Intruders are diverted from its eggs by a chance at catching the adult. But uh, sometimes it's the kid who's talking in a big suit, mm. like David Byrne. When I write, I'm always midfield on one leg, the other poised over killdeer eggs. That's for imbalance. Being dubious of being sure, I don't want a form or a music or a metaphor. To, to close itself and lock itself down as the answer. I want it to, to stay off balance a little bit, so standing on one leg helps that. And the result of that is that the audience, the listener, the reader, has to stand on one leg too, so that each time the reader or listener thinks they're sure of the piece, they're reminded that they can't be, and in that sense, they're led to a different way of experiencing something than they find from TV, so that it's active, not passive. 
eventually the poem will ask you to give it away like a bride to its own imbalance and complexity. Yeah, that's, that's what I meant. <laughs> Just in closing, can you read us something that's, that we can take away with us? Anything you'd like in particular? Uh, well, anything that I've put a little mark beside, is, which is quite a bit. I live a song and a half south of Perth now, within three miles of where I'm from, around Bob Cajun, fearing that proximity. But I drive between the rock cuts along Number 7 Highway and north towards Bancroft, and I feel at home between those. As a boy, I would look out at the hard scrabble settlements going by. I'd have my thumb in my mouth. I'd be holding a copy of Treasure Island. I'd think, this is the dullest place to be born, the most boring trees. I wanted palm trees and grottos, giraffes, giraffes in igloos. I still do. But my bird is the killdeer. My colors are gray and green, colors to hide among, like camouflage. My stone, limestone, my tree, the hawthorn, spikes and red berries. My flower, the red trillium, not really red, russet, the sort of brown that leaks from wet, rusted nails. Lying on my back in my log cabin reading, I study the square beams in the roof. I'm looking at cuts swung by lumberjacks around 1850. I can hear each chop splintering wood chips flying. The furthest I ever ran away was from my childhood and region, what they seemed to insist on, which was, or would have been, silence, ignorance, bitterness, crudity, xenophobia, contempt for all that is fanciful, books, etc., addiction, violence, misogyny, etc. When I sing, I cry like the killdeer. In sleep, I fly low over the old farms we didn't own. My cry, this habit, this lie, a home hum. Longing to die, ah, far away, Crete. Fling my ashes into that white-eating blue. I will join the faces in the rock cuts. So, doesn't matter how far away I run, I come back home. Doesn't matter how far away the poem runs, it has to come back. I hope this book does both. Thanks very much. Thank you. I'm glad you're taking the time to talk to me about it. It's nice to meet you. Likewise.